Hello and welcome to the Simon Goes Podcast. This is episode 55 and this is part two of our recent catch-up with Dr. Alistair McConaughey on all things COVID-19. So if you missed the first part, please go back and listen to that first. Otherwise, let's just jump right in. Now, we touched a little bit on this the last time and that was our behaviour, our um, sticking to you know, protocols, routines, you know, we're all getting a bit fatigued, a bit tired. Are we we maintaining the same kind of rigid protocols? Have you noticed anything? Is that still a concern or? or Yeah, it does. It does worry me. It really does worry me because, because I see it in myself. (laughs) And I think, I think all of us are just a bit tired of this. Um, If we go back a year when I spoke to you as an ID physician, it was all quite exciting. Um, you know, I'm an ID physician, it's a pandemic, this is great. And now I just wish it would go away. I've kind of had enough, to be honest. And and I think we're all like that at work. I think we're all like that in terms of our life outside work, um, uh, which is suddenly not that exciting. So, and, and my, my concern is things like changing P- P- PPE such that people feel safer people being vaccinated, uh, reducing numbers of hospitalised patients, <clears throat> reducing community um, cases, all of these things, all of these very positive messages feed in to a real desire from all of us for things to go back to what we call normal or at least just to be able to go out and do stuff like go to the pub with my mates for a drink, you know. Um, and I think what we have to guard against is is allowing that to put ourselves and our communities, our households at risk. Um, I mean, you know, vac- let's take vaccine, for example. It might be a good time to talk about vaccine in this context. But, you know, vaccination, I mean, the, the technological advances in vaccination as a result of this are phenomenal. We've got RNA-based vaccines. We've got... Um, uh, viral vector vaccines. We've got good old-fashioned polypeptide vaccines. It's 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 hugely hugely moved on, and the vaccines are brilliant. But they're brilliant at stopping you getting severe disease, and they're brilliant at stopping you dying from COVID. There is less data to suggest that they are good at protecting you from catching COVID, and indeed, there's a school of thought that they may make you more likely to have mild disease. We know that mild disease is less associated with the symptoms that we characterise as COVID. So people with mild disease are more likely to have a bit of coryza, sore throat, a bit of myalgia, a bit of headache, but less likely to have fever, cough, and the things that we characterise as COVID. And therefore, there's a concern that those who have mild virus and mild infection are more likely to spread it. So, So we have to remember that okay, I've been vaccinated, well, that, that's good. That's going to stop me from coming to harm from COVID, but it doesn't make me immune and it doesn't yet, there is not a huge amount of data to suggest that it protects those around about me. I'm sure that data will come, but right now, um, you know, it, it's not. So what the thing that protects me from actually catching it is using my PPE correctly, social distancing and all the things that I've becoming increasingly resentful of. <laughs> so I, 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 I think we, 
we have to still keep our guard up is, is what I would say. Yeah, and that leads quite nicely into a, a second audience question, which comes from Katrina Considine, who's an ED consultant in Glasgow Royal Infirmary. And she asks, now that frontline staff are now mostly vaccinated, what does that mean? And there's a few kind of things to this. A, could we be start to become even more complacent? Well, we're okay now, we're vaccinated, so maybe we don't need to be as as rigid. Um, do we still need to follow the same guidance on testing for ourselves if we become symptomatic? And is there any impact on lateral flow testing, which we discussed about before? Um, so do we need to still follow the same guidance in, in testing ourselves? Yes, absolutely. I, I think... Um, I think I'm sure that a lot of people listening to this will know colleagues and people who've had vaccine and who have still caught COVID. Um, so if you're unwell, yep, you still get tested, particularly if you get those symptoms I mentioned of mild disease, you know, just something non-specific, sore throat for a few days, a bit of myalgia, a bit of headache, you should be getting tested. And the reason for that is is more to protect those round about you, I guess. You're probably going to be fine. But the one thing that there isn't much data on vaccines is that it reduces carriage of virus and reduces infectivity. So I think the AstraZeneca study suggested there was a 25% reduction in viral carriage, which is not huge from vaccine. What we don't know is if the vaccine that's detected is actually infectious or not. There, you know, you could hypothesize that it's opsonized from your antibodies and therefore less infective. But we don't know that. Population data suggests there may be a bit of that because we've seen such a huge reduction in hospital admissions um, in the vaccinated age groups. Um, but I think right now we still need to get tested if we have symptoms. Can we change the way in which we we kind of manage patients in hospital due to vaccine. I think Katrina asked about um, using AGPs again, you know, out with certain areas, et cetera. Probably not, given what I've just said. I, I think the answer to that is point of care testing. We need high throughput, and I think this is coming. We need high throughput point of care testing. And, and I think that what we should probably be doing is routinely testing, certainly in a hospital environment, routinely testing at point of care everyone who's coming into hospital. And then you know if at that point in time they have COVID or not. Um, if that's negative, then I would be happy to, you know, to let them use their CPAP machine on the ward or, or, or whatever. But you would regularly, you know, do, do a nucleic acid-based test on them as you go. Um, over the course of that admission, every three days, every five days, every seven days, whatever. Um, so so I, I, I think the thing that changes that is point of care testing rather than vaccination. I've forgotten the first part of our question. Yeah, I guess complacency was one of them, you know, is, is that a risk? Yeah, complacency is, is maybe unfair on all of us. I think it comes back into feeding into the fatigue that we've all got with this. Um, I think it's false reassurance as opposed to complacency. Well, let's talk a little bit about vaccines. Um, is there one better than the other? Or are they much of a muchness? <laughs> <laughs> if you had a choice, which one would you prefer? Um, I yeah. I, yeah, I get this all the time. I've been given the good vaccine. I've had the Pfizer one. Um, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because 
I guess we've tried to explain really complicated population effects to the wider population without appreciation of the real subtleties that, that come with it. Um, so this idea that, that Pfizer can say, you know, a 95% effective and AstraZeneca can say, well, what, 78% or whatever it was effective. Clearly, we can't say one is better than the other. Um, they've never gone head to head and therefore we can't say one is better than the other. And there are key differences. You know, if we take those two vaccines, Pfizer and AstraZeneca, there are key differences. You know, Pfizer... Um, after you had the Pfizer vaccine and the Pfizer study, then there was a very clear definition of a kind of illness complex that should lead you to getting tested to see if you've been infected or not. And we now recognise that that definition is at the more severe end or moderate to severe end of the illness. And, you know, and you get, if you look at Pfizer, strictly speaking, those with kind of mild disease may not have actually gone for testing because they wouldn't have had the list of symptoms that they had to have to get tested. So you could, and we don't know this, but you could argue that Pfizer missed, a, you know, a group of people with mild or even asymptomatic infection. AstraZeneca was a wee bit stricter. Um, I think to my mind, AstraZeneca did weekly swabs and, and looked for asymptomatic carriage and things as well. So there is, you know, there's a difference between those two studies. I don't think you can say one is better than the other. I think what we can say about the vaccines is that they are really good at stopping you dying of COVID. All right. So if you look at all the all of the study data, there was, I think, one single case of severe disease in those who'd had vaccine as opposed to uh, placebo. Um, so I think vaccines are brilliant at stopping you dying. Um, and I think that is the utility. And and that means that that means that you're less likely to go into hospital, which eases the pressure on hospital services. You're less likely to need a critical care bed, which eases the pressure on that finite, you know, finite service, etc. And certainly, and this is completely anecdotal, I've had lots of care home residents admitted with COVID now, with quite impressive X-ray changes, who've had first dose of vaccine. Um, who've survived. And again, it's anecdotal, but I suspect a lot of people recognise that this that these are people who previously, I think, would have died and, you know, we'd have been uh, palliating them and they've they've survived. And I'm, I'm sure that's vaccine that's done that. And I think it's probably worth emphasising um, that it doesn't necessarily stop you getting it. I think, isn't that the key? I mean, it's it's the same with the flu vaccine. I think if you were to ask most of the general population, they think that vaccines stop you getting flu, but that is not the case. And it is probably the same with COVID. So it's worth emphasising that we still need to be vigilant with all the usual precautions. And, and is that fair? I think that's very fair. If we look at what's defined as efficacy in these studies, it's symptomatic infection. That, that's what's defined. Um, and that depends how you define what symptomatic infection is, given what I've said. Um, and and it's, yeah, so the, the, the these vaccines are good at preventing symptomatic infection. Uh, and that's going to vary person to person because individuals within a population obviously will have different risk factors for uh, for symptomatic infection and therefore you can't necessarily say that 
95% of over 80-year-olds who stay in care homes who get Pfizer vaccine are going to be protected against symptomatic infection. Clearly, that that's not what the data shows. What's your thoughts on off-license use? So I think we're all quite familiar with having our second vaccine doses postponed. Um, and then there was then chat of mixing vaccines. What, what, what's your thought thoughts on this? Uh, so... And again, this might not be popular, but I think delaying second dose for healthcare workers was absolutely the right thing to do. I'm very clear about that. Um, the best I heard was some, some one of the variety of experts who, who appear on TV saying if your house is on fire and you've got two fire extinguishers, you don't use one and then save the other one for later. You use both your fire extinguishers. And there's a real need in the UK to get the amount of infection down to safeguard hospital capacity in particular. Um, and I suspect for those working in primary care to safeguard primary care uh, capacity. Um, and that's what vaccines done. And therefore, I would not wish to have my second dose of vaccine prioritised over my 78 year old neighbour. You know, and that's the reality. And, I, and I, I worry that a lot of the narrative, particularly from people like the BMA, comes across as a wee bit selfish. So I, I, I think it was the right thing to do. I use vaccines off license all the time in travel medicine and our immune system doesn't work in four week blocks. So it doesn't necessarily follow that if you get your second dose of vaccine at 12 weeks rather than four weeks, that it's gonna be less effective. That, that's not the way our immune systems work. It's not the way biological systems work. Um, on a very simple level, you're priming the immune system and you're giving it a, a kind of second exposure to to prolong the the, the immune response, um, and and therefore, I think it's you know vaccine is a finite resource. It was better to get it out into the community, and of course, what protects all of us is the fact that more people in our community have had vaccine as opposed to us getting two vaccines. So I so I think it's fine. I think using it off label. I, I think there's plenty of parallels. I, I do it with Hep A vaccine all the time. I do it with meningococcal vaccine all the time. I do it with rabies vaccine constantly. We do these things all the time and they work. And and I think it was the right thing to do given the situation. Mixing vaccines, I think that's quite exciting. I, th I do think that's quite exciting. I, I, I think these vaccines do have quite subtly different modes of action in terms of how they stimulate your immune system. So can you get a better response from mixing a peptide vaccine with a, a nucleic acid vaccine? Yeah, absolutely. Let's have a look at it because that gives us the that gives us the um, the kind of it just allows us to use our resource so much more effectively. Okay, just a final question on on vaccines. What is, what do you think is the genuine risk of a sudden vaccine-resistant variant? Is that just a bit of hype, a bit of fear, or is it a genuine possibility? Do we just not know? I think it's a genuine possibility. You know, I think nature is bigger than any of us. And and I've said this before, in the great scheme of things, human beings aren't actually that special. Um, so I think we, we apply a selective pressure with vaccine. It would not be a surprise if there is a some kind of variant out there that makes it less susceptible to the antibodies or the immune response derived from vaccine um, to then be selected selected out. And of course, that's where the 
population protection stuff comes in the way to keep that sort of variant down is for us to maintain two meter distancing and the whole kind of level four, level three, level two kind of stuff is what will protect us against that. And I assume that's what's driving the, the kind of continued wish to to do these things during the winter months. So I think it's possible. I don't think it will be sudden. I think we'll know about it. Uh, given what I've already said about COG UK, I think in the UK we are fortunate because I am confident that we would we would pick that up. They're already starting to develop vaccines against different variants. It's already in the offing. Um, the beauty of nucleic acid, uh, of kind of RNA vaccines, is that you can change them. Uh, and I know that they're already developing uh, vaccines for variants that have been identified and they have the ability to do that. I know that there are a group of individuals who will probably on a regular basis decide what the COVID vaccine is going to look like, just like we do with flu every year and try and, and, try and predict it. So um, I think it wouldn't surprise me if it happens, but I think we'll know about it. And I think we'll have the ability to adapt it. And what is the reasonable long-term prediction now? I think this is here to stay. Is that is that fair enough? Yeah, we've got we've got to learn to live with this. And it, and it's interesting. The questions all all point towards that. You know, we, um, I think, in hospital we have to learn to live with it. In primary care we need to learn to live with it. In society we need to learn to live with it. This is not going away. Um, and. <sighs> I'm probably not qualified to get into the kind of eradication versus elimination versus live with it type argument. Um, but I, I think the concept that somehow we can eliminate this, I, I, I think is, is, is an admirable thing to aim for, but I do wonder if the compromises that come with that are actually worth it. I think we have to accept it and we have to accept that people will die of this in the same way that people die of flu every year. I think we have to put responsibility back onto the population. I worry that what we've done is introduce a bunch of rules and, and everyone's natural inclination to that is to find a way around those rules, as opposed to saying to people, it's up to you to look after yourself. It's up to you to look after your family. It's up to you to look after your community. We're going to tell you the best ways you can do that. But ultimately, if you don't do it, well, bad things are going to happen. But it's on you, you know, um, and I, I think that's a really difficult concept. I, I, do, I don't say that to criticise any of our politicians because God love them, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't right now. But, um, but I think we have to start that conversation because this is not going away. We need to learn to live with this. We need kids at schools. We need people back out doing the things they enjoy. Uh, we need hospital systems to work in a way that people without COVID aren't compromised in their care. I mean, there's so many aspects to this. And you know, we like to push you a wee bit beyond your boundaries of expertise, but in the last one, we did speak about national strategies and I think we touched on Sweden. So with a little bit more information and knowledge, um, who who got it right? Who, whose was the right approach, do you think? I don't think anyone's got it right. I think there's many ways to skin a cat. And I think whatever path you choose... Uh, there's going to be difficulties. So the UK gets a lot of flack for its high death rate and all the rest of it. I think it would be really interesting to come back in 10 years and look at death rates across countries. Um, I still subscribe to the idea that they probably won't change much um, uh, over time. Uh, Sweden's interesting. They did everything I've just described about 
empowering populations and stuff. But interestingly, now they are in big trouble. They've got huge amounts. And I guess that's because people are just tired of all the stuff, you know, just like any other population. Would I want to be in Australia and New Zealand just now? I'm sure it's really good at the minute. And, and, and I think, again, you know, they need applauded for what they've done. But there's lots of aspects to that. It's it's easier to do given where they are geographically. You know, from New Zealand, you're three thousand miles away from your nearest country. Closing your borders is is much easier to do. That's more difficult in the UK, where you know you've got transfer across Europe. You've got the UK is is multicultural to an extent that people travel all over the world and travel to parts of the world with high COVID. Um, so I think that is more difficult. I don't know about the economic impacts of closing your borders and how on earth the New Zealand and Australia decide when they reopen to the world, because there's going to be an economic pressure to do that. And given what I've already said about vaccine, does that allow you to do it? I, I just, I don't know. Um, uh, so I, I, I think they have really difficult decisions ahead of them about how they do this. If they get it right, then great. Uh, you know, clearly they've they've made the right decision. Um, I, I suspect there's no right or wrong. I think the important thing is that our leaders make decisions and they're very clear about what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then we do it. It's what we do in clinical medicine, right? We we make calls, we make decisions. We accept that they might not be the right decision, but we reassess them as we go and adapt. That's leadership. That's that's how you deal with difficult situations. Uh, okay, well, look, I think we've covered most of the questions that we'd hope to ask you. So we have a few audience questions. We put out a call and we got a few in uh, in advance of this. So do you mind if we just run through a few um, a few kind of quickfire ones? Not at all. So, so Chris McDonald asks, in general, why do viral outbreaks peak and then recede? Is it human behaviour, immunity, virus behaviour, environmental conditions, or all of the above? Don't know. I suspect there are other people who who would answer this more eloquently than I can. I can give you my interpretation of it. I I think um, the the kind of seasonality, particularly of respiratory viruses, is obviously very marked. I don't think we know what it is that causes it. It's always been thought to be a real mix of things. So I think climate has an impact and cold weather. So if we take COVID, for example, there's been one of the things that's been described as lots of outbreaks in kind of meat packaging and meat processing factories. Clearly, these facilities are held at quite a low temperature. So is that because the virus is more transmissible at that temperature? Don't know. Or is it just because people work in close proximity to each other? But there's definitely, and COVID does this, it it displays seasonality. Um, Where does it go? There's a theory that it kind of reverts back to whatever its animal vector is or, or whatever. Um, I think we just don't know, but there is there is a very specific kind of seasonal effect. So flu, for example, is, is a year-round illness in the tropics. The closer you get to the equator, the less seasonality. Flu is a really common illness in returning travellers with non-specific febrile illness from the tropics all year round. Um, and it might be why we've not seen much flu this year. You know, because people haven't been travelling and therefore transmitting it into uh, into places like the UK from abroad. We're all wearing masks. We're all keeping distance from each other. You know, these things are are effective. I suspect these sort of measures are going to be what we do every winter because um, it now seems like a no brainer. Um, yeah, but I, I I I don't I don't think we really know why they do it. And they used to say on the uh, one thing that I 
couldn't quite get my head around, so I'll, I'll chip in with my question. They, they used to mention that as we approach winter, we were expecting COVID kind of risk to go up because people were moving indoors. And I didn't quite understand that. I thought if we were moving indoors and not being out more, that would be helpful. I, I didn't understand the thought of moving indoors. So I didn't quite I didn't quite get that. Was that a kind of I guess, Yeah, there's probably two aspects to that. I think I think one is so transmiss transmissibility of COVID outdoors is really low. It's really low. Um if you're staying two meters away or even, you know, slightly less than that outdoors, then it's going to be, it's not going to be as transmissible outdoors, particularly in a climate like Scotland's. But, you know, it's, it, outdoor association is going to be low risk. I guess the worry about indoors isn't so much you isolating with your family, because clearly that reduces contact. The issue is people having large gatherings indoors, where, you know, you obviously concentrate everyone's respiratory droplets in a, in, in a much more confined environment. Yeah, I just hadn't thought of that. <laughs> now that you now that you say that, that makes more sense. <laughs> I might I might cut that question out. Ah, uh, don't. It's a good one. <laughs> um, Jasper Sandu asks, and we may have touched on this slightly, but uh, was the forty percent increased risk of hospital admissions of patient facing NHS staff avoidable? Unfair question. <laughs> Almost <laughs> certainly. The, I mean, I, I mean. So unfair in that we're looking at it with hindsight. So I think the answer to that is yes. I think if we um, if we had known what we know now, um, and it comes back to Philip's question earlier about adopting masks, etc., cetera, um, then I think we would do things differently, but we didn't know what we know now. Um, so I think it's unfair. Part of that though, yeah, okay, 40% increase in risk. But remember what I said about a vet, that's an increase of a very low absolute risk. So let's not overplay this. Um, let's accept that we have some responsibility for how we protect ourselves. Um, and let's accept that we do a job that puts us at risk. And it's it's what we do as as healthcare workers, right? And, and we do it in that knowledge. It comes back. I think I've used this analogy before, you know, fire service personnel run into burning buildings and put themselves in danger all the time. Um, police officers do the same. So, you know, I'm not sure that we can feel overly, how would you put it, overly precious about ourselves. I, I think we are at risk. And, and obviously there are people in society who work as healthcare workers who are at particular risk. Um, but but I think it's probably, I think the risk assessments for people's particular risk and we've had the discussions about PPE and stuff. I think we would do it differently if we, you know, if we know, if we had known what we know now. Okay, Gianna Cassidy asks, um, has there been any negative impact on being COVID positive in hospital? Has there been any kind of knock-on effects to their care? Yeah, so this, I mean, the answer to that is yes. Um, I think it would be crazy to suggest otherwise. I think it happens on an individual patient basis. So so we've been running one of our wards as a, a kind of hub model. So so when people are diagnosed with COVID, they come to us, we, we take the people diagnosed nosocomally and we're, you know, we're inheriting patients 
halfway through a medical admission who by definition have complex medical problems um, and then trying to get people to engage in continuing to manage their non-COVID issues is, is a day-by-day -day challenge. Um, a, and I think all of us need to be aware that when we're seeing people who are who have a positive COVID swab, we cannot use that as a reason not to strive to provide the best possible care for all the other things that they that they have wrong with them. That's a constant challenge in infectious disease. It's something that we that we face all the time. Um, trying to trying to you know get that get that over, and I think the response is natural. There's probably a wider patient implication as well. You know, if you've you know, if um, if you have, I don't know, I'm trying to think of something very specialist. You know, if you've got a brain tumour, but you happen to have a positive COVID swab with asymptomatic infection, do you really want me looking after you? Or do you want someone who can actually look after that looking after you? And that's, that, that's another and you know another aspect of it and i think infection control procedures constantly have this this conflict where the infection control response needs to not have a negative impact on the patient's care and i think that's a challenge and i think all we can do is be aware of it and be aware of when it's happening and strive to to minimize that impact as much as possible Thank you. Mags Bowie asks, what effects might we see from other viruses um, when we end distancing restrictions? Do you think some will have died out completely or can we expect to see an increase in number of viruses circulating and number of people infected? So I don't think they'll have died out completely. They'll, they'll have retreated to whatever vectors they sit in um, over the summer. Uh, so, you know, I don't think we'll never see RSV in kids again, for example. Um, uh, so I don't think they'll have disappeared completely. It is really quite impressive the impact that social distancing has had on these these things. And you speak to colleagues in paediatric ID and paediatric colleagues, and they're just not seeing as much RSV in kids and all of these things that they would normally see at this time of year. Um so, I, you know, the, the, it's very clear that these these kind of procedures have, a, or the kind of social distancing and what have you, has a massive impact um, on these flu. We've we've not really seen flu at all this year, and we are looking for it. You know, the Sentinel sites stay open. Um, I know that the the virus laboratories are testing a, a certain percentage of COVID swabs on a weekly basis for flu, and they're not finding it. So we are looking for it. It's just not out there. Um, and presumably that's that's behaviour and lack of international travel. Um, so I come back to it, I wonder if every October <laughs> we're all going to be asked to start wearing masks and what have you, um, because the impact out with COVID on certainly hospital systems of not admitting people with flu would be quite significant. Yeah, I remember reading an article at the very, very beginning, probably actually pre-first lockdown. It was probably around January. I remember reading an article from the the world expert in coronavirus from the 70s. He'd now retired, but he was a big virologist in America. And he basically said, but look, this is what I do every year. 
every year I wash my hands regularly. Yeah. I don't touch light switches. I open things with my elbows, you know, and I guess that's kind of what you're saying. You know, we'll there's, probably there's always, adopt. Yeah, there's always, there's always been good data for that. So um, there are studies in people who are obsessive hand washers and, you know, and, and these people have lower rates of seasonal respiratory tract infection, you know, as a result. So, so we've always known that, you know, these sort of things are effective. Craig Brackenridge asks, how do pre-hospital practitioners persuade their patients that to be breathless and feeling a bit crappy is okay and they don't need to go to ED? They found that managing expectations is as big a challenge pre-hospitally as managing the illness. Yeah, it must be really difficult, actually. And I, I, I genuinely don't have a handle for what's going on in primary care in terms of patients with uh, with kind of ongoing issues um, post-COVID, but I'm sure it is, it's significant. Um, I'm sure that primary care colleagues are actually really busy with this sort of thing. I think, I think this is all about managing patient expectations. So certainly when I'm discharging people, my standard line to people is that you're going to feel a bit rubbish for another four to five weeks. You're going to find yourself getting out of puff easily, you're going to find yourself feeling a bit tired, but gradually that should improve over that time and expect um, it to take that long. So, uh, you know, I had COVID first couple of weeks of December. I would suggest it's really just in the last month that I've started to get back to my normal self again. Um, so it does take a while and that's that's what happens with viral infections. But I think it's about us educating people. And the important thing is it's about that honest discussion with patients, isn't it? So that patients know what to expect. They know what it's going to feel like. They know what it shouldn't feel like. So these are the things that should make you go to ED. These are the things that should make you go and see your GP. Um, but but it's about that the honest discussion about expectations. I think we know enough about the illness to have that discussion now. I think we've probably come to the end. I was going to just chuck in one last question. I, I know you've probably given up predicting about COVID. <laughs> yeah, because I've been wrong. <laughs> could, could you just, yeah, no, I wasn't saying that. But <laughs> Would you have any sense of what the rest of 2021, like just a broad summary, what, what, can you see things easing up significantly in the latter half of this year? Can you see significant changes in our behaviours? Can you see what? What? How do you see it playing out? Right, I'm going to tell and you, I won't, and I won't hold you to this. No, 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 do hold me to it. So, so it's fine because I suspect we'll probably do this again at some point. Um, uh, so, my my prediction uh, would be that vaccine is is going to significantly or continue because it already has is going to continue to significantly reduce pressures particularly in hospital admissions and i think it was the concern about hospitals becoming overwhelmed i mean we were looking at modeling um for for this point in the winter which suggested that we were going to you know have levels of admission way beyond our capacity and that has not happened um, and and I think that the maintenance of hospital capacity will be one of the things that will will drive a reduction in social restrictions, and I think that'll be down to vaccine. The problem with that is that when you 
loosen restrictions, there is a risk that you'll get more infections. We've already discussed that you might uncover a variant which is less susceptible to the vaccine, for example, or you'll have lots of people with very mild illness then spreading it widely in the community. I'm going to predict that we will start opening up at the end of April, beginning of May. I think this virus does display seasonality and therefore I think amount of virus circulating in the community due to seasonality and vaccination will be very low over the summer months. And I think we will see a trickle in hospital. Um, and I think we will probably be okay. And I think things will open up. I would predict that we'll all be given another vaccine towards October type time and I would suggest that in the winter at the end of this year we'll all be back to wearing masks indoors and possibly some restrictions on social distancing um, that is the way I see it panning out the things that are going to change that that I have absolutely zero knowledge about is the whole economics and businesses going bust and mm, people people not buying um these restrictions for some time. Um, but I think from a virus point of view, I think the summer will be okay. Um, personally, as someone who enjoys travel, um, and I do a lot of travel internationally, I ain't going to be going abroad this year. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, I think foreign travel is going to be heavily, heavily um, discouraged, probably by making it so complicated for you um, <laughs> that you won't want to do it. But I'm quite confident that I'll be able to travel within the UK. I suspect, Alistair, there may be a part five and a part six. Um, <laughs> the way the way things are panning out, and we hope you'll come back. Uh, until until the next time, uh, please stay safe and well. I thank you so much for for sharing all that information with us. No worries, on thanks a lot. Many many thanks to Dr. Alistair McConaughey. I'm sure we'll be hearing more from him in the coming months. Many, many thanks again to you for listening. And don't forget, you can access lots more additional educational resources uh, at mungos-ed.com. Just one last reminder that we're partnering with Continuous.com. That's Continuous, L-U-S, where you can access courses and lectures with leading speakers and researchers from around the world. And we'll be bringing you more information on that in the coming episodes. Until next time, please take care. <laughs>